0: Hi, this is Editing Elena from the future. Here to apologize because unfortunately my mic malfunctioned, and so the track with my voice on it is of subpar quality. However, I do hope you listen to this episode because my conversation with Eva was really, really interesting and she has some great insights on care experience literature and care experience research, so please do not be deterred by my bad sound and listen to the episode. I also want to note a few content warnings. We do discuss things that happen in the book that pertain to self-harm, death by suicide, kidnapping, unsafe sex work, and generally lots of traumas as well as substance abuse so please be aware of that as you listen but i do hope you give it a go even if it's only to listen to eva and now here is the bookshelf remix content you came here for to Bookshelf Remix, a podcast where we read books by underrepresented authors and geek out with deep dives. Today, we are discussing Jenny Fagan's The Panopticon. This is a YA book based on the author's experience in the care system. Set in Scotland, the novel follows Anaïs Hendricks, 15, as she is remanded to a group home, The Panopticon. Anaïs is a suspect in the assault on a police officer, but the book is more of a slice of life than a crime mystery. I invited. Eva Ejspecke, the person who recommended this book to join me on the pod. Eva, would you like to introduce yourself to the listeners?
1: Yeah, sure. Hi, my name's Eva, and I'm a PhD um, candidate at UCL and the Anna Freud National Centre for Children and Families. And I guess I'm super interested in this book because of my research, which is all about um, care experience, and in particular the relationships which form between young people living in care and their foster carers.
0: Just for our non-UK based listeners, whenever we're going to be saying care experience, you might have heard it referred to as foster care in North America specifically. I don't know how it's referred to in other places.
1: Yeah, and actually in the UK, care experience can mean, in the UK we would say, There's foster care, but there's also residential care. So when we say foster care, we mean living in a family type setting with one or two carers and residential care, which Anna lives in, is more of a kind of group home setting, like a children's home. But also care experience can include being in secure accommodation, which gets referred to in this book, which is more like a juvenile detention Mm centre, or even being in a hospital um, under a care order.
0: Yeah, I think... In general I would have also grouped all of those and we would just call them a group home or we would call them something like that or like hmm. juvie and stuff like that yeah. but, like, it would always like especially if you watch like criminal minds like they're often paired together they're like they were in and out of foster care and juvie they're like it's the same thing
1: <laughs> yeah it's like uh, a shorthand isn't it yeah. um
0: but can you just say briefly how you got interested in this area do you personally have care experience
1: no, no, I, I don't have care experience. The reason why I became interested in this was when I was a teacher. So I originally trained as a teacher after doing my undergrad degree. And I had the good fortune to work with some young people who were living in care. And I just had the overriding impression that though these kids were just objectively excellent humans that there was just not the right provision for them the school didn't do we probably didn't know how to do the right thing for them and we certainly didn't do enough in my opinion and yeah their needs just seemed quite sidelined by the mainstream education system and yeah uh, I just felt like we can understand these young people better and we can do better for them and that's why i was interested in researching this area more
0: yeah and I was unaware before I met you that care literature was even a thing or like literature written by about the care experience by people who have care experience and I just remember my family was kind of an accidental foster family when I was very young so when I was like four to six we took in a young boy who was being abused by our neighbor, who was his official mm. foster family. And so my mom just found him in an abusive situation and like took him out. And then mm. the child protection service was like, You're not an accredited foster family. And my mom's like, I'm not sending him back. And so basically he stayed with us for two years until his father mm. asked for him back. Mm. And then in another informal way, my cousin, who lived far away, like her mm. legal guardian died and she had nowhere to go so she also like ended up living Mm. with us for a couple of years but I was very young I do remember you know there being lots of issues with school Mm. and how both of these young people interacted with the school system in different Mm. ways but I was myself a child and they were just kind of like living at my house so I, yeah. I don't have the most vivid, lucid memories of what was going on. But yeah. I do remember reconnecting with the boy who's now a man years later and being like, Oh yeah, I think I was one of your foster families. And he's like, Which one? Like after you, like I had seven. <laughs> like and I was like, yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, it's um yeah, unfortunately that aspect of it is yeah, not an unusual story. The fact that yeah, in um in the uk for example it's not unusual for a child to move three times in um one year um even though that should be incredibly unusual um it's Uh it's really not um but actually yeah the situation with taking in a, a child who is with a neighbor i mean yeah that that's pretty extraordinary it's not something which um happens every day and certainly not here the systems are so rigid often that There's not space for that kind of natural kindness and um, sort of community coming together almost to care for a child, saying, you know, this child isn't legally my responsibility. I'm not a foster carer paid to look after this child, but I'm going to do it. Um, It's become so much more professionalised and there's pros and cons of that. It's certainly something which I think touches a lot of people's lives, even if they don't think about it as care experience. Living with a a close relative you know that's technically classified often as kinship care so yeah it's it's a broader definition and it's got fuzzy boundaries as well
0: yeah I think in this book Anaïs does say at some point she changed social worker more than 12 times in a year so that's Mm. more than once a month Um, Mm. so that that does happen yeah
1: and, and that mirrors some of the young people I've interviewed. I remember one of them saying it was, I think, 13 times in a year. So really similar to Anne. and you just give up and it just becomes a bit of a joke but actually in the UK certainly it's the social worker and the social work team who actually hold legal responsibility for a child often shared with their birth parents foster carers don't have legal responsibility for um, the children they care for so it is actually quite bonkers for the person who is your corporate parent to be so inconsistent like you can't parent a child if the person who's a parent changes every month but yet foster carers often have very little in the way of sort of legal rights or decision making power. So
0: given your own like extensive knowledge of both how the system works and the people that you work with and study how do you feel about this book? Yeah
1: I mean I mean I love this book I love Jenny Fagan's writing I love the style of writing even if it wasn't on a topic which was so close to my interests and the things I really care about I would still love it, and I love her other work (laughs) for that reason as well. But I think this is a special book because it really gives a an accessible window into care experience, and it doesn't cut any corners or sort of lean on stereotypes. It both gives people a bit of an insight, but also challenges them in what they think care experience is and what they think care experienced people or particularly children are like so um I really love it for that I- I'm curious how you found it new to the care experience literature world
0: I mean as a child and I think this is fairly common I enjoy a lot of orphan narratives Even if, you know, I had a very happy family life, like, it it was always like, what do children do when adults are not around, or adults are being neglectful? Mm. That's something that appears often in young adult literature, it's not unusual, but I thought this book was so beautiful, and it's complicated to say that because there are definitely some very heavy and dark themes Mm. and the protagonist we see the flaws of the protagonist so it's not Mm. kind of like a straightforward hero narrative but at the same time you grow attached to a lot of the characters and it's definitely I feel a character-driven YA novel yeah which is rare It's not to say that there aren't activities. There's actually lots of stuff that happens. Mm. But because it's portrayed as kind of a day in the life of um, these, these youth, it's, I don't know, I feel like it's so different. It's at one time very violent and very tender and never, in my opinion... Sensationalized, yeah. which, given the subject matter, is extremely difficult to do because <laughs> there's so much trauma. Like, you if you imagine one trauma, it's there basically. Yeah, and it could so easily have made me feel kind of very uneasy and disgusted, being like, "Look at how abject this person's life is." Mm. Which I feel like I don't know if you're familiar with. Kind of cautionary novels. Mm. They were like in the big in the eighties and nineties of like a fictionalized account of like a young teenager's diary, and it's like it's completely fake, but it's to show like drugs are bad and Satanism is bad. Yeah, um, and it's purposefully written to be like you shouldn't engage with this. Look at how mm. horrible their life is, mm. and we'll we'll talk about it. But Anais's life is very difficult. But it's never put in a position where like, you should feel sorry for her in a pity kind of lens. Yeah. Do do you agree?
1: Yeah, I definitely agree. And I think along with those cautionary tale books, there's also loads of just uh, if you sort of browse recommended reads, sometimes when you're looking at care experience literature, there's often these titles I mean I kind of don't even want to repeat I mean I'd <laughs> repeat them but um things like the girl who was raised in a pen or something like that or mm-hmm. the boy who was left in a bin or something horrible and sensationalist and the writing of the books fits with that that it's really how traumatic can this narrative be and how sorry can we make the reader feel for this person while not really giving them any humanity? Whereas that's not how this feels. Um, like you said, it's not about, oh, let's pity Anae because of this list of things which have happened. It really challenges you to, in my case, love her character, but for other reasons, which aren't, it's not just by default because terrible things have happened. It's because of, who she is as an individual. Yeah, so I I do think it's quite genre-breaking in that way, which to me makes it very special.
0: We'll never know for sure, but I suspect it has a lot to do with this being an own voices novel. So the author, having had care experience, even if it's not exactly the same as Anaïs's, makes you really understand the way that she moves through the world feels real. Yeah. To a young woman, and like me as the reader, I was continuously caught, and then she would explain, "Oh, this happened to me," or like I was with this person and did this, and you'd be like, "Oh, that means like you were eleven when this happens," mm-hmm. and then you, but you keep forgetting, and I feel that she as a character also like necessarily needs to forget certain things. And once in a while, she'll kind of take stock and be like, oh, this reminds me of this really bad situation I was in. Or this reminds me of this really traumatic event that I witnessed. But you kind of are taking along with her as she goes through her life, seeing, like, she is a 15-year-old girl who has to deal with things like flatmates or... Panopticon mates (laughs) and like school and authority figures and where to get her next drugs and stuff. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And she has all of this experience. So I think in a way, Fagan really allows us to follow Anais through her life and we feel these like waves of remembering or waves of anxiety uh, coupled with day to day living
1: yeah absolutely and she doesn't make an super just i guess unlike some of those orphan narratives which you were talking about which we kind of get fed a lot as um children she's not straightforward she doesn't fall into one obvious box she's not just a bad girl cautionary tale <laughs> or a villain who's exposition is that she has care experience but she's also not a pure saintly hero who's working her way through all this trauma and has come out totally unscathed i i always love that line from the wes anderson film moonrise kingdom i mean wes anderson is not unproblematic But um, there's a line where there's a care-experienced character and there's um, a girl who he's having a romantic relationship with. And she says, oh, I always love stories about orphans. I wish I was an orphan. Your stories are so special. And he says, I love you, but you don't know what the bleep you're talking about. (laughs) Um, And I just think that's so right. And I feel like this story fits with that. It's saying it's not some romantic totally special story about just love and getting through it and everyone's perfect and look at them surviving despite all this like it's difficult and Ana feels that and suffers from it
0: so I guess this is a good point to segue into part two where we want to discuss trauma narratives in YA in general do you have any kind of other ways like good or bad practices of addressing trauma in YA narratives that come to mind?
1: Yeah, um, I guess I would like to, at this point, say, if you're really interested in this, particularly in um uh, care experience narratives, I would recommend reading the blogs of Kenny Murray, Rosie Canning, and Dr. Dean Mitchell, who talk about this quite a lot. And so lots of the things I'm going to say to cite them, they're all care experienced people and writers. Lots of the stuff I'll say is definitely inspired by. Uh, their thinking but yeah I'd say some even though I have said that the orphan as a survivor and or or even someone who's experienced trauma and then gets through it and does really well and it all goes fine even though I've said that obviously there's some problems with that in YA literature or in any literature on the other hand those kind of positive representations I think can be really Beneficial and powerful, and Kenny Murray has written about this in terms of Stan Lee, uh, the um, superhero comic uh, writer, and about how his superheroes often are care experienced or have been care experienced, and how as a young person growing up in care for Kenny, that was such a big deal to have someone who's positive and not a criminal, okay. having also been through trauma or separation, and being someone without typical nuclear family. And I think that's really, it is really important that we shouldn't say we can't have any of those. Um.
0: I mean, it makes me think of inspiration porn in Mm. disability areas. And it's, you know, we don't want to say that disabled people can never do things like have a job or a career or can never
1: swim across the channel
0: (laughs) achieve higher education or like exactly we don't want to say these things but it's I suppose like who is it serving so I think you said it well when you said like someone who is care experiencing it's really useful for me to have these role models or to have to see that it's possible like I don't have to let my experience put me on one inevitable path there are things that are possible I don't have to become a fatalist to give up Uh, it's another to say look you know this person was you know the victim of lots of intersectional systems of oppression and they overcame it so now we can feel good about ourselves and and to
1: make that a prototype (laughs) for us or a, a moral lesson to suggest that people who it's not easy for or who aren't forming societally in the way that we expect that that's because of something individual to do with them whereas frequently what's going on is we as a society have not done enough we have not like filled the gap of something which has gone quite wrong and that is our responsibility particularly for people in care where the the government and is the corporate parents so It's their responsibility to fill that gap.
0: Yeah. So in the book, Anais is sent to the panopticon because she is suspected of having assaulted a police officer who is now in a coma. So this is kind of a very tricky situation where if she's found guilty, she will be sent to what sounds like a military camp. Um, But yeah, a detention center. They call it high... Yeah, a high
1: security unit or a secure unit. So that would be a a lot.
0: Secure unit that's on an island that (laughs) no one knows exactly where it is. And so the intermediary step is she's sent to Mm. the Panopticon, which is a, yeah, I'll call it a group home. And so she's there with other young people, there are varying ages, there are some very young people and there are more teenagers like her. And for anyone who's not familiar, the Panopticon is actually the name of a type of building that originated in ancient Greece. And it is in general round in shape and has a tower in the middle. And it's meant to be able to surveil all sides So if you're in the tower, you can see everywhere. Here, it's a kind of a U-shape, so it's not a full closed circle, but it's still called the panopticon. And they also have this strange policy where you can never close doors completely, which to me (laughs) sounds bonkers, but (laughs) yeah. I'm like, okay, great. (laughs) Um, So it's like someone can always see you. And part of Anais's, I don't know if it's a coping strategy or if it's just the way she structured her world. She believes that there's someone in the tower that's watching her and that she is part of an experiment because she never knew her birth parents. She's always been in care. And she's like, maybe the experiment like made me in a Petri dish so they could kind of like throw everything bad at me and see what it does to a person. And so this is a kind of dark fantasy that she has throughout the book that in some ways she finds mm. very comforting and in other ways is very anxiety
1: inducing mm.
0: I-, I saw that you know in our notes you talked about kind of alternate worlds mm. and fantasy can you speak more on that
1: yeah so full disclosure um, my discipline is psychoanalysis so we have two types of fantasy fantasy with an f which is um what you normally think of a fantasy so my fantasy house would be um what i'd make on sims or whatever um whereas fantasy ph is more is not necessarily a good imagining but it's a way of imagining what things could be like which is um yeah your internal way of understanding the world which as you described, Anna's is about this experiment. So we'd describe it as a PH fantasy. It's her dream of how the world exists. And yeah, it's, I wouldn't always bring in Freud, but he had this idea that everyone as a child um, has a fantasy PH that they're, family is not their real family um, and that someone is going to whisk them away and take them somewhere else and they'll find out where they really belong and that's an interesting idea when you think about children in care where that fantasy almost seems to come true for and it's a ph it's not a positive thing that people want but it's um, that dream or nightmare seems to come true and they may not discover where they belong and yeah it's very rupturing to your worldview to not have a sense of where you sit in the world and yeah it almost seems like an imaginings about the experiment might be a way of explaining why does all this terrible stuff keep happening to her if this is just how the world works that's just so terrifying and you can never escape that if that's really what the world's like but if it's a an experiment then if you're smart enough and sneaky enough and fast enough maybe you could get out of there maybe you could beat them so you could see why that would be a useful defensive strategy and yeah um often for young people living in care there's a lot of you know mistrust of services not just f- um for individual defense reasons but also the, a service might have taken you away from the people you love most in the world regardless of whether that was the safe thing for you or not it, it's not always straightforward and also there are, are abuses within the system and that is sort of hinted at here um, they talk about restraint and um, yeah where children can be physically restrained while living in group homes and often really hurt or killed so uh, there. The system is dangerous in reality, in in the way that it is without any experiments.
0: Do you want to talk a little bit about the other kind of peers that we see in the book and kind of their relationship to Anaïs and the fact that Fagin has done a concerted effort to present like different types of yeah of people in care.
1: Yeah, so I I mean I really like this aspect of the book in that the her friends in the, or or some of them not friends in yeah. the um, home, um, really have different experiences. Some of, uh, one of them is a, a young mum who um, has a diagnosis of AIDS, which is also a very different kind of trauma, a very different kind of experience to be a mum living in care, but also quite a common one. Um, and so really important to have that represented there, And not every child has necessarily experienced intentional abuse or maltreatment from um, birth family members. There's one young boy whose mum is very unwell, and that's why he's living in care at that time. Yeah, she has
0: cancer, so he has to be in care because (laughs) she has, like difficult cancer
1: exactly and I mean that I mean obviously that is a trauma but it's a really different type Mm -hmm. and I don't think people always think about all the different options or stories which could bring someone to care but they all share and this is a phrase I use (laughs) probably too much but every child in care has lost one thing which is the chance to live consistently safely and continuously with their birth family Mm -hmm. so I think we shouldn't go around sort of what well, we should try and understand those differences, but we shouldn't go around saying, "Oh, well, that's a less bad experience than this." Like that, there, there's a shared experience of loss for every yeah. child who's living in care.
0: And you know, so Isla, the mother, um, is also self-harming hmm. quite a bit, and she's self-harming specifically because her her children got AIDS in utero, I believe. Hmm. And so she so she's very young and she's dealing with like being separated from her children and with this kind of guilt that she's putting on herself. And so we do have I feel like a very honest and generous portrayal of someone who self-harms. Hmm. I feel like Fagin really portrays Ayla as a full human being, you Know sometimes like just hangs out with her friends and she's in a relationship with Tash. Who's another young girl there, and so like I feel like Ayla is very confident in her own sexuality, and you know loves Tash. At some point, like they get they go out for like a picnic and they get married. It's like super sweet, <laughs> oh, it breaks my heart. And so in that sense, like you see like these girls are together. They're in like a very committed relationship when you think about mm-hmm. it. There, there's a lot of like mutual support come on, and Isla also cuts herself and sells harms So I think that also is an important representation of a complex character. And Tash is also a sex worker, and the way like they, she goes out with Isla, and like Isla like spots the car registrations to make sure that Tash doesn't get taken off by evil customers and unfortunately that does happen and that's also heartbreaking and so when you say about like things about being separated from those you love like I feel like at the end when Isla dies by it's unclear if it's by suicide or if she just cut too far and like how they all rally around Mm. her and how even the Social workers and the care workers are, like, really trying to have special dispensation to be like, no, they all must go to the funeral. We're going to, like, arrange for... They ask the residents of the Panopticon, like, how do you want to remember her? Like, do you want to paint a mural? Do you want to do these things? I feel like as much as the Panopticon is a dark, looming space that is obviously very oppressive, and, for example, the fact that no one will give Anais vegetarian meals which is again baffling they're like you're just gonna let this child starve i do feel that the most let's say most of the workers that are portrayed are also portrayed in a generous light like i feel like you can see like what happens i guess what i'm trying to say is like you can see the impact of how like dark the situation can be and still have good human beings throughout which I think is very important because Mm. it's not like this is hell and it's 100% awful all the time but it also shows that you know having kind people work a system (laughs) that is very difficult doesn't always like make everything better either
1: yeah yeah and there's a there's a sort of lightness within each of the characters mm, (laughs) with possibly some exceptions Um, but there's um, there's a sort of brightness between them and there are moments where you get to see them being kids and being young and silly or tender and that's I think that's what pulls the book really together and also how even in a space which might seem not like a family a sort of group home setting in quite a hostile constantly observed environment that the young people are able to really have each other's back and support each other and I think it also allows Fagin's kind of allowing us to see how these young people who might do things which other people might find really hard to understand um, or really difficult to be around or to make sense of that actually what they're doing often has a has a meaning like is a valid communication of their experience and also that she's trying to help us generate empathy for these young people and I guess what a book really should do is translate into our real lives and so I guess I would think that this type of literature about care experience should help us be a bit more curious and think a bit harder when we try to make sense of behavior which might at first seem oh this is challenging behavior or this is quote-unquote troubled behavior whereas actually there's lots going on if we take the time to understand it or if we appreciate that we might not get it but there's a reason why this is happening um yeah. it reminds us in me of that uh, of our discussions about authoring autism and how Yugo talks about how communications well that there are things that autistic people may do which not everyone will immediately understand the meaning of that for example fecal smearing they might think what is that that's (laughs) why have you done this there's no reason this is pathological this is not a valid communication but just because we don't you can't easily understand it from an external point of view doesn't mean that there's not a valid communication in there mm-hmm. and it is not for a reason it's not serving a purpose and I think that's the same for people with experiences of trauma that some stuff we, we might think oh why why is an fantasizing about all these other possible lives or the experiment that's not what's happening but there's a reason there's a function to that
0: it really informs her actions sometimes and that's where from the mm-hmm. outside mostly adults don't un- always understand her for example the way she acts in regards to the case against her with the police officer the two adults it seems like she's not taking it seriously but mm. from her internal logic it makes complete sense um yeah. it's just that no one else is privy to her internal logic <laughs> yeah so, this is a good place to take a break and yes. we'll be back shortly Hi, this is Elena, and if you like Gilmore Girls and nerdy thematic recaps, listen to my new podcast, Women of Questionable Morals. Together with my co-host, Soraya Emanuel, we dig into lots of themes like, should Rory date anyone? What is the relationship between wealth and privilege in the show? And which recipe do you want to make from the Gilmore Girls Cookbook. If any of this sounds exciting to you, check out Women of Questionable Morals on all of your podcast platforms and find us on Instagram at WOQMPod. And we're back. So there's one thing... I I wanted to say before we move on, how did you approach this book given that it so heavily uses Scottish brogue and like (laughs) Scottish slang? And I realized that I've been living in Scotland for five years, so for me it felt like kind of like warm to see this represented in a book. Like Fagan is from Livingston, which is around Edinburgh, and the people in the book are mostly you know working class and things like that so it's like a different slice of the population that is represented in a lot of media I just I found it like very true to life like I would feel like yes a 15 year old who grew up in care would definitely speak this way I read lots of reviews they were like there are too many f-bombs like and I was just like (laughs) but it doesn't sound like an adult trying to be cool (laughs) it sounds like no this is how these young people do speak but I'm curious like given that you do not live in Scotland like was this a deterrent did you like this
1: I think it's something I really enjoyed so I really like reading Scottish literature because it is excellent um so I think probably when the first time I would have read literature which had Scottish colloquialisms, I would have maybe been a little bit lost. But I think over time now, I kind of have a voice in my head of what th- what that should sound like or <laughs> what this the wor- a word written in this way should be pronounced as. I have the advantage of my partner being Northern Irish, which is not the same accent, but there's some similarities. similarities. And so that... That helps. And I guess another care experience literature b- book, Shaggy Bain, is also written in Scottish colloquialisms, probably more strongly. It's a Glasgow accent. But yeah. but yeah, I think when I came to read Panopticon this time round, I was very much in a mood of having read quite a lot of Scottish literature in the year. So it, it sort of didn't clash, but I don't think I would have always found it easy to navigate you can hear from my accent that I am a Londoner <laughs> <laughs> we will not hold that <laughs> you.
0: I, I'm just trying to think of reading other books that plunge you into a completely different type of language and that could certainly be a barrier mm. but yeah. I found that it was understandable through context Yeah, yeah. and for me like just seeing a <laughs> did a <kin laughs> represented I was like oh yes <laughs> This is really good. I just, yeah, it it felt me feel a non-Scottish-born Scottish resident, like, feel very at home, which I think is a wonderful thing
1: to find yeah. in the book. And I think it's something which I, I do like the challenge of something written in a different sort of dialect or with different colloquialisms to my own. I do like being challenged by that and picking it up. I remember reading... Uh, marlon james's a brief history of seven killings which has some chapters which are in quite heavy jamaican patois and that was tough like i found that pretty tough to mm. pass and but then again like through the book you're learning and i guess trying to get a voice in your head and then getting a flow to how you internally read it so it was definitely worth it
0: <laughs> so i in the notes said you mentioned that Jenny Fagan did an interview for Granta. I love Granta. <laughs> what was that interview about?
1: <laughs> yeah, so it was a podcast for Granta when she was awarded um, Young British Novelist, a Young British Novelist Award, a few years ago, and she was being interviewed predominantly about this book and where her what direction she was going with it um, and I guess what I was so curious to read was that well there, there were so many things in this interview it's brilliant I really recommend listening to it um, but one big thing she mentioned was the question that she wanted to answer with this book because she said she starts all her novels with a question and the question here was can you be truly autonomous in this world Um, and particularly I guess in in this world of care experience with all the close observation that entails and so I think while some people even the interviewer was asking herself while she was reading the book could I love this child and I guess that's not the question which Fagin was asking, the question in her head, and everyone might have their own, was, yeah, can you be free? And what's the cost of that freedom?
0: That's really interesting. And that would be interesting for me to like reread it, knowing that that was her intent. Because mm. Anaïs is definitely very resourceful. So whether it's when she's mm. remembering things in her past or things that are happening now, for example, she gets an electronic bracelet Uh, to be monitored by the police and she finds a way to like use her contacts to find someone who's going to like take the tag off even (laughs) though it's like futile
1: (laughs) knowing a man with a dog (laughs)
0: exactly so yeah she's incredibly resourceful like The way at the end she manages to escape like with the help of her friends. So there is this constant push and pull between her feeling really observed and feeling powerless and frustrated. But she always kind of bounces back, even if those efforts are misguided. Or even if she herself isn't 100% sure that this is what she wants. For example, it's hinted that she was in a kind of codependent, abusive relationship an older man who was also her drug dealer and now he's in prison and he wants her to come see him and then he says he's out of prison and he wants her to come and you can see that she's like I don't really want to talk to him anymore but he's also an important part of my life and I felt that also felt very very true to life (laughs) I feel like I'm repeating myself all the time but I'm just like I, I recognize that feeling and I can recognize how as someone who has had no constant, no tether, Mm. um, how going to see this objectively heinous person (laughs) um, would seem like a good idea.
1: Yeah. There's this truism when people talk about care experience, particularly like clinicians or psychologists, when they talk about um, children living in care that often, for example when a child comes to live in foster care um what's really becomes valuable is things being predictable and any level of things being constant you mentioned before um Anne talks about having moved 50 times or something um and some crazy number of times and so any strand of consistency becomes really important even if it's a bad strand um and so there's often this um thing and I don't think it's true for every young person but this idea that often a child will try to cause a foster placement for example to come to an end because the thing which is predictable is it's gonna end and so if they can take some control over that by pushing things to come to a close then at least it proves your theory of how the world works or your fantasy of how the world works yeah they're they're gonna go and this is gonna end um uh, or for Anne, um, he, he'll be there in all his horribleness um he'll be there consistently um and to So I guess in the search for autonomy, it's not just autonomy from all the people observing you and telling you what to do, but it's also, can you get autonomy from your own habits of thinking or view of the world and Mm -hmm. be free from those um, expectations? and that's something we're all kind of fighting against not just care experienced um people but any child will always be wanting autonomy and pushing off their parents but if a child stays out too late they normally don't get reported immediately to the police and it doesn't get put on some sort of record whereas care experienced children get very quickly criminalized and everything's written down which Hopefully, it's not in most people's um, homes of origin.
0: Yeah, that's a, there is that added layer of oh, she's just a teenager. It's Like she's not just a teenager because her movements mm. are monitored. Like she's punished if she um, doesn't abide by the rules in a in a very yeah self defeating type of way. Mm. And I also want to briefly talk about because you mentioned criminalization, Um, Hmm. talk about the book's attitude towards actions and or um, professions that are deemed illegal or immoral. And I find that, I mean, I was a very self-righteous teenager. So if I had read this at 15, the age NACE is, (laughs) I would probably not have finished it it would have been too scandalous I would be like you're trying (laughs) to tell me that this drug addict person is like a good person and um yeah but now that I'm 29 (laughs) and I've thought about these things more and dealt with my own fears around addiction um I I think I think it's so refreshing to see the kind of again, just very open and honest discussion and relationship to drug use, drug abuse, um, and sex work in this book. For example, Anais' um, adoptive mom, who's the one who gave her the name Anais, um, was a sex worker. And everything that relates to her is like extremely positive. And, and like this is someone that Anais truly loves. And I've mentioned before, Tash is also a sex worker, And, you know, they do discuss, you know, sometimes you have bad clients, sometimes it's very scary, um, all of these things, but it's presented as being part of her world. And not being a huge deal. The same way that they all share drugs. They all sell drugs to one another. Um, She knows when she feels one type of way. She wants one type of drug. And like, etc. It's not be like, oh, I promised myself I would quit. No, I can't quit. Or like, I need to clean myself up. Or I just like, I've given up on life. It's, It's a much more nuanced way of approaching it. Because it is never discussed. If that makes sense
1: yeah yeah it's definitely not um and also you see quite a mix of drug use and not all of it comes across as unhealthy um like there's some sort of you know mild mild drug use where you think maybe in this circumstance that's the appropriate response like what are you gonna it's almost adaptive a a way of staying sane we don't see from this the long-term consequences of uh drug use but it's made to not yeah it's not made to be a scandal it's just sort of part of the world we find ourselves in um and there's also nuance there's people who are vicious and um involved in the world of drugs but and um you know dangerous punters in sex work but also yeah humanizing it again like Tash her motivation behind sex work is that she wants to be able to save money to get a flat with Isla um once they age out of the care system and you just think that's (laughs) so wholesome it's (laughs) It's just (laughs) so unbelievably wholesome like it's um You can't get more wholesome than that. Um, But what choices does she have as to how she's going to do that? Um, And, yeah, it's kind of... I think it also highlights lots of the teenageness Mm -hmm. of some of the crimes that they're involved in. Um, And also lots of this stuff, lots of this drug use, there there will be young people who aren't in the care system who might come from a really privileged background who are sort of play around with drugs but that's not going to probably end up on their record um but for these young people every move they make is really watched and that makes the stakes a lot higher or maybe to them feel almost not high because they think they've already lost um
0: so i mean anise shows up in court and the judge is, like, very hard on her, being like, look at all your priors, look at how many times we've caught you for possession, or, um, for, like, drunken disorderly conduct, or, like, assault, and all of these things, um, so yeah, there is a particular scene in the book where you see this, like, very openly explained, and her care worker is saying, you know, she doesn't deserve, like, this treatment and the judge is like all I see is your rap sheet or like your resume of (laughs) crimes um, of delinquency antisocial behavior or whatever they call it in the UK Um, Mm. and yeah it's this way of like two ways of seeing this one person but also I think for example that's one of the instances where Annalise takes a Xanax to be able to appear Mm. in court which I mean that's probably fair like she probably yeah. she probably needed that <laughs> like...
1: yeah I mean it's not a natural situation for her to find herself in and so how are you going to cope with that that aren't the resources around or the therapeutic or emotional support to get through it so she's just using what what she has um and and even though maybe we should, as a society, be offering something better than a Xanax, um, I think this book highlights that we're not. Mm-hmm. Um, and so who are we to judge what um, what the best way of coping with this is for her at this time?
0: And so that kind of leads me to like discuss a little bit the ending of the book. And so I already said at the end, she decides to run away because... Even though the police officer is recovering, they have decided they're sending her to lock up, um, I think it's called John Kay, so this kind of mm. militarized care facility, and she says, I'm just going to go, I'm going to go to Paris, which was part of one of her ongoing Sorry, things. can
1: I pause? Yeah, My yes. doctor is calling me for some oh. reason. <laughs>
0: So when talking about the ending and Anaïs decides that she wants to escape. She wants to go to Paris, which is one of her like ongoing fantasies, like one of the ongoing kind of origin story she gives herself is that she was born in Paris and that's also why she has a French name and all these things. And so she decides to run away and they do like classic kind of great escape routine which is quite fun also at the <laughs> end um, and get her away but before that there's like this period in between Isla's What? Well, wait maybe it's like going up to Isla's funeral and she knows she has to escape like right after because they're mm-hmm. coming to get her and I just want to read this this passage so just a note Anais has a like a strong sense of style like, she very proudly says, like, she goes to vintage shops and she likes to, like, stand out and be different with her clothing. Um, so I thought this line was very interesting and very touching in a way. So she says, I washed my hair twice. I'm wearing my oldest converse. They look so shit and worn, but they're great. I put gloves on and a scarf. I'm dressing myself like I'm somebody else's bairn, Carefully, like it counts. And it's this kind of, like, ritual that she's like, I know ah, this is my break. So when we're thinking about autonomy and all these things, um, I'm I'm moving on. And she's just like, this idea that I... She starts saying, I started dressing seasonally. <laughs> like, putting on <laughs> coats when it's cold. As supposed to walking around in a crop top all the time. Um, but this idea, like, I'm taking care of myself like as if I were someone else's child. Like, it counts. And... I mean, that kind of broke me a little bit because mm. it was so simple, so tender, but also like this idea that sometimes you have to think of yourself as being someone else in order to justify taking care of yourself um, mm. or like in order to gather the strength to take care of yourself and this kind of, I've, I read that as for kind of accepting like I'm I am a I could be a child of the experiment, but I could also be someone else's child that deserves to be taken care of and i can I can go there. Um, but I mean, the book ends unresolved like she's she's a, successfully escaped the Panopticon and she's on her way to Paris, but we never see her get there or any epilogue or anything. And why do you think that is?
1: I think. I mean firstly I totally agree that that line was those little moments where she lets us into what it's really like to not be the child of anyone and to have to do that for yourself is uh pretty heartbreaking but in terms of why they why Fagin chose to left leave the ending open um I think how I I sort of wondered when I was thinking about this how could she have ended it i guess she could have had her get somewhere and and find some people or do an epilogue years down the line um or could have had things go really wrong but i guess um with care experience people, there's an infinite number of ways that things can go. Like just like with anyone, really, they can go from the really, really bad um and things can go really wrong, um, to things going really well and um going in a way that lots of the people in her life or the judge um would never have expected. Um and I guess maybe Fagan wants to leave that open to our imagination to not shut Anne down to one possible future that there's so many directions that she could go um and i feel like that's accurate or as, as you have been saying true to life i agree with that um because but, i feel yeah. like
0: there's obviously there is no sequel to this book Fagan has written other yeah. books with other topics but there's no sequel to this book and again i think it's genre breaking breaking in terms of young adult literature because you often want the happy ending or you want like um a sense of resolution like i can't think of many ya novels that are not part of a series that don't end without any kind of like and then you know she grew up and later while she was feeding breakfast to her children she remembered (laughs) how hard it was to be in the panopticon like we don't have any of that like it did leave me with a hopeful feeling because, again, Mm. you're taken along with Anaïs and she is feeling hopeful and she's feeling determined that she will make it in Paris and that she will make her F fantasy (laughs) come true in that Mm. sense. But it's also not a given. As you say, like there is no promise that everything will go well, that nothing will catch up with her, that she will be able to (laughs) make a living (laughs) or all of these things. I mean, I personally love the ending and to answer mm. the interviewer was like, can I love this child? I was like, I would be like, of course. Like, she sounds like a super cool person. <laughs> like, of yeah. course I would love this child.
1: <laughs> we were messaging each other throughout being like, well, Anna is really cool. <laughs> so,
0: And I'm a person, and people who've listened to other episodes of this podcast will have heard me say this, like, I often have a hard time with protagonists. whether it's mm. because Maybe I, <laughs> I'm a heretic at heart, and I'm like, you tell me to like this person, therefore I will not like it. <laughs>
1: or
0: I just find them annoying, I find them cloying, or they, they're supposed to be either morally superior, or they're supposed to like, really be abject. And with Anaïs, you feel like she's a human being. And I think that's Mm. one of the best things you can have when you read books about people (laughs) is that you connect with people and you feel like they're fully fleshed out human beings and not just imaginary characters. So although my experience, my life experience has nothing to do with this character, I felt like she was such an accurate representation of what it was like to be a teenage girl (laughs) in a way Mm. that I think is... I mean, I hope that's what Fagin wanted, that you know, lots of people could connect with the story.
1: Yeah, it does feel like she's walked out of the street somewhere or just out of the real world and into this book, and then we just meet her there, and she could easily walk out, and we can meet her somewhere else in the real world um, later down and the line. And I said
0: before, like it could be because it's an own voices novel, but just because you have personal experience doesn't mean you can write it in such yeah. a way <laughs> so i mean thank you jenny fagan i will be reading everything you will ever write so <laughs> thank you eva for introducing me to this author
1: <laughs> you're so welcome
0: <laughs> so and i don't know many maybe we can do more care books in the future we'll see
1: yeah love that <laughs>
0: So as for recommendations, mine are not very interesting because I've mentioned them before. I found it very difficult to find direct like companion reads for this book because it's so specific. I do want to mention one of my favorite books of all time, Son of a Trickster by Eden Robinson. And it does mention care, but in a different way. So because Jared is First Nations, in living in BC in Canada, and he lives not in a reservation, but adjacent. And so his parents both have substance addiction issues and there's a lot of, like, neglectful parenting going on. And so he ends up living with friends or crashing up people's couches. Or, like, when he goes to Vancouver, he, like, lives with his aunt, which you said was, like, kinship care type thing. And I think this is, to my knowledge, fairly accurate of um, Anishinaabe and, like, First Nations... Experiences of care. It's not always like the traditional being placed in a family or being in a group home. It can be this kind of couch surfing experience. And that's also another book where I feel that the relationships with people who have substance addictions is complex and beautiful as well so I thought it was a good map up (laughs) and the other one might seem a bit more random but the fifth season by N.K. (laughs) Jemisin just because there's a fulcrum and the fulcrum is basically a panopticon and one of the characters um, is taken from her family and like kind of placed there and in this militarized environment and As I was reading the panopticon, I just kept visualising the fulcrum in my mind. (laughs) So I felt (laughs) I had to mention it. What about you?
1: Um, So I've got a few, um, and I've only selected uh, books by care-experienced authors. Um, So one which is just fantastic is My Name is Why by Lem Sese. And that's um, an autobiographical book um, of... Lemse Say going through his care records and trying to kind of make sense of the way he's described in them and how his life fits together and also his experiences of being um, a black child in a very white area during his time in care and how he made sense of yeah how he was seen (laughs) Um, and Lemza Say is great. His poetry, also fantastic. Um, Another book which I loved, um, a recent release, relatively recent release, is That Reminds Me by Derek Owusu, which is one of the books um, which has been published by murky imprints uh, the murky imprint of penguin um and it's just a really poetic book if you can find videos of Derek Owusu reading from that reminds me it really brings it to life um and again a lot about his experience in care and particularly around the intersection between care experience and experiences of race and mental health um and substance abuse as well
0: yeah I listened to the audiobook and because oh. it's so poetic, it was really, mm. it was really wonderful. I also now took out the ebook from the library to mm. uh, be able to read it as well. But it is a great experience. But yeah, it does. It is a in a way more graphic possibly yes. um, than yeah. the Panopticon. It's not YA, um, but I think yeah. it was also <laughs> interesting to to see the representations of someone that's in care but then also goes back to the birth family which mm. is to my knowledge also a common thing. But we yeah, think of really like common. people who like are always in care like Anais, but there are a lot of people who go back and forth between yeah. birth parents and a kind of non-birth parent caring situation.
1: Yeah and that's obviously a hugely confusing experience because you're being told it's not safe and you can't live there but then you're back and living with people who you truly love as well um and yeah I think all the complexity is in there but it's definitely not a light read my name is wires uh emotionally heart-hitting but not as graphic as that reminds me um oranges are not the only fruit um queerness and care experience it's a light read and it's more well it's not a light read in some ways but you can read it in a light humorous way or you can read into it more deeply into the homophobia and the feelings of difference there certainly not as graphic and then finally of course jenny fagan's luck and booth her latest release um set in a Edinburgh tenement and as the book goes on you're working up the floors of the tenement and also working forwards in time and hearing the different stories that that building holds Um, it's just an incredible concept it's so Scottish and spooky but there's also such diversity of representation in that book is it's just great
0: so, Eva, where can people find you on the internet? So
1: on Twitter I tweet at EA Sprecher. Um and on Instagram um my handle is windup underscore book underscore chronicles. And I'm also quite boringly on ResearchGate. <laughs> that you can read my uh sort of published research at Eva A. Sprecker, but I don't have a researcher website yet.
0: Not yet. But you do have a podcast.
1: Oh, yes, I do, um, which is called Who Cares About Research. And it's, I, I sort of co host with um, Sophia Hall, who's the founder of the podcast, who is a care experienced advocate. And we together interview researchers about social care research, um, particularly stuff which is new and talk about it in very accessible terms for anyone who's interested in learning about social care research
0: you can find me personally on twitter at elena g Mammarill, on instagram at spinodler and on my website elenagotsimemorial.com and you can find more bookshelf remix on twitter and instagram at bookshelf remix you can write to us at remix at gmail.com and you can support us on ko-fi.com that is also where you will find our full episode transcripts Please rate and review the pod on Apple Podcasts. This helps other people find their feed. And until then, text a friend from Scotland about the show.
1: Text a friend with care experience about the show.
0: And remember to give your bookshelf a good remix.